This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. The consequences have been piling up since the Prime Minister's bombshell accusation that India was behind the killing of a Canadian on Canadian soil. We talked to a former CSIS agent and Toronto has been led by a wide variety of leaders from the good and the bad to colorful rogues. A new book has the first ever look at all 65 Toronto mayors. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Next time you reach for cold and cough medicine, you may want to think again. A leading decongestant used by millions looking for relief is no better than a dummy pill, according to American health experts who voted unanimously against the effectiveness of the key drug found in Sudafed, Dayquil, and other medications. The FDA says the -the over-the-counter decongestant, phenylephrine, replaced another drug, pseudoephedrine that's now only available by prescription because it can be illegally processed into methamphetamine. The finding could force drug makers to pull their oral meds from store shelves. Starting tomorrow, every U.S. household will be eligible for four free COVID tests. Meantime, Oral COVID vaccines are not far off after a successful Japanese study on monkeys, where researchers say it's not only easier to administer, but may be more effective at fighting the virus than an injection. That's because it can neutralize the virus before it has a chance to enter human cells. The new national speed limit in Wales is 20 kilometers per hour, making it the first country in the UK to reduce speed in residential areas near homes and schools. Lawmakers say the new law will make the roads safer, reduce noise, and encourage people to walk and cycle more. And the Welsh government hopes it will see 40% fewer collisions, save 6 to 10 lives a year, and help up to 2,000 people to avoid injury. There's another contributor to loneliness for baby boomers and the silent generation. Many older adults blame supermarket self-checkouts for wiping out one of their last remaining social interactions. So many checkout lanes are now automated that chatting with a cashier is becoming rare. A U.S. study finds two-thirds of Americans say technology has made it harder to meaningfully connect. In Canada, opinion is split. 54% think the do-it-yourself kiosks are a good idea. But a new trend is emerging in the Netherlands, where a store chain now offers a slow-moving lane for older shoppers who like to have a friendly chat with a human cashier. 
Paul Simon is unlikely to perform live again due to sudden hearing loss. The 81-year-old rock and roll Hall of Fame musician says it happened while recording his new album that came out in May, but nobody since has been able to explain his condition. Simon said he recently endured a severe COVID infection, which has been linked to sudden irreversible hearing loss in some patients. And while Simon technically retired from touring in 2018, he took a headlining spot a year later. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The consequences have been mounting since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's bombshell accusation that India may be behind the killing of Sikh activist Hardeep Singh Nijar. Diplomats from both countries have been expelled. India has issued a travel advisory against Canada, and it has suspended visa services here. There are also growing concerns about whether it was the right move. I talked with former CSIS agent Phil Gursky. I would like to think that by rising in the House, as he did, that, you know, that all the T's had been crossed and all the I's dotted, and that all the intelligence had been, you know, assessed, reassessed, confirmed. My other reaction, Libby, was actually one of uh, a bit of concern in the sense that he did state quite explicitly that this was based on intelligence he'd received. And you and I both know that other forms of intelligence that were linked to Chinese interference in our elections going back many, many years was ignored by this prime minister. So my first reaction to somebody who spent 32 years in the business was, so some intelligence is good intelligence when it fits your agenda and other intelligence is not so good. So I was a bit, I guess, torn between those two reactions. Okay, I'm hard-pressed to think of another instance where a head of government gets up and makes this accusation public, and by their own admission, even before all the investigation and the facts are in. Can you think of something? Normally in these circumstances, for an allegation of this nature to be leveraged on another country, you would hope you had all your ducks in order, meaning that you had the best intelligence, the best information possible that had been assessed by your security and law enforcement agencies. So when you stood up in the House of Commons, you were standing on, on pretty firm ground and that the facts that you have as best as they can be determined was the best information available at the time. This, will, of course, will come out in the days and weeks to come, I suppose, but it was a rather dramatic performance, to say the least. Well, on the one hand, uh, it certainly overshadowed his more mundane problems with uh, sinking like a stone in the polls and the resumption of parliament and uh, grocery bills and affordability and summoning the grocery executives. Uh, however, the other side of it was the Globe and Mail said that they gave the government at the end of the day to respond. And if not, they were going to publish the story is is that uh, a reason? Possibly, and my understanding is that the Globe and Mail, as you're probably aware, Libby, the Globe and Mail has been using intelligence that's been leaked by somebody. Uh, who that somebody is, I have no idea. Everyone's pointed the finger at CSIS, where I used to work in counterterrorism. It could be anybody, Libby, who's on the receiving end of finished intelligence. So we can't speculate on actually who leaked the intelligence, but maybe the government made a decision once burned, you know, once burned, twice shy. And in the sense that they couldn't have this story leaked to the Canadian public to demonstrate that once again, the Canadian intelligence failed to act on intelligence that it it should have had in its possession. Hard to say what the calculations are with the Liberal Party and the leadership, the Prime Minister's office, et cetera, et cetera, his closest advisors. But I think uh, 
a working assumption is that they just they want to be caught sort of uh, you know unawares yet again to be seen as not to be in control of what's happening in Canada. Okay, yeah, because uh, generally speaking, I would think the government reaction to a story like this is to say we have no comment at this time. You would think so, and you'd also think that if, in fact, the government, you know, the Canadian government has solid intelligence pointing to any involvement in the killing of this Sikh activist a few months ago, that you would raise it on a bilateral level. Um, I'm not going to betray national secrets, Libby, but, you know, we have relationships with intelligence services all around the world. We have to, because we're a rather small intelligence presence globally, whether it's, you know, counterterrorism or counterespionage or whatever. We rely on allies, and allies just beyond the traditional five eyes, you know, the Brits, the Americans, the Australians, and the New Zealanders. And so we undoubtedly have relations with, with our Indian counterparts. And if we had suspicions they were involved in this, that's the kind of thing you kind of handle, you know, spy to spy or security service to security service. To make it public like that is, well, it's not normal. And uh, I'm sure it's complicating matters for, you know, security partners thinking, well, if we do, if we talk to Canada on a, on a bilateral basis, well, our conversations go public as well. So not a good door to open, I don't think. India is a problematic partner from several perspectives. They are, you know, they're the world's largest population or, or soon to be so pretty soon. Um, they, they do have intelligence. They have, they have military. They also have an issue with Hindu extremism in India. We have a very emboldened Modi and his BJP, BJP party, which seem to be supporting acts of, of Hindu violence against non-Hindus in India. So they are a complicated partner, but that's that's the way it works in intelligence, Libby. Yeah, you're never 100% on board with your parties, even our closest allies. We have differences. I just like to think we could, you know, have these conversations and, and at least, you know, talk about what's happening. Anything else you want to leave us with? Yeah, last thing I would just say is it just, again, points to the inconsistency of the Trudeau government in the sense that, you know, 30 years of intelligence on Chinese activities has largely been ignored. And in fairness, not just by the Trudeau government, by succession of Canadian governments for all kinds of reasons, be the economic, political, whatever. And yet we have this one piece of intelligence that points to, well, maybe albeit a more serious crime, i.e. murder versus, you know, stealing secrets or stealing technology. But it certainly seems interesting that the government chose to disclose and act on this intelligence when it ignores three decades of intelligence on a on even longer and probably more costly problem to Canada. Thank you so much, Phil Gursky. Appreciate this. My pleasure, Libby. That was former CSIS agent Phil Gursky. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, some were curious and eccentric, and others were bigots, bullies, and social crusaders. A new book looks at all 65 Toronto mayors. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. leaders have shaped the city in its 19 decades of existence, and they run the gamut of rogues and rebels, as well as forward-looking social crusaders. Mark Maloney looks at all of them in Toronto's Mayors, A History of the City's Leaders. What made you want to write a book about all of Toronto's mayors? I think the office of Mayor of Toronto is, is one of the best and greatest offices, uh, political offices in the country. It's actually the the largest office to which one can be directly elected in terms of the number of votes. In terms of parliament, you know, you have individual ridings, but in terms of a mayor, 
you're directly elected by all the citizens of the city. So, but the other reason, I guess, is that I had the very distinct and unique uh, opportunity of working full time for three mayors, uh, either in their mayoral campaigns or at City Hall, Barbara Hall, Mel Lastman, and John Tory. So I, I guess in working with them, I had this curiosity of, you know, what were all the other mayors like? I was surprised to see uh, violence. So one mayor committed murder, another carried out a home invasion, one attempted to kill a predecessor, but his pistol jammed. And under the threat of capture and certain death, two mayors were forced to escape the city and live for years in exile. Uh, Tell me about those mayors. Well, you have to put it into the context of in the early days in the 1800s, um, you know, Toronto was a pretty uh, (laughs) wild place. Um, We started off the city way, way back in 1834, the founding of the city. Toronto was then just a small little dusty colonial outpost in the British Empire and very small. It was only 9,300 people. In those days, we had like uh, Mayor uh, John Powell he actually committed a murder during what was called the 1837 Rebellion. He shot an opposition person, and, and actually it made him become more popular and ended up him becoming mayor because of the two mayors, uh, William Lyon Mackenzie and Mayor um, Morrison, um, who was after him, had to flee Toronto because they were in danger of losing their life, being charged with treason, and they would have been put to death because of the rebellion in 1837. So they left. He left Toronto for years to live in the United States. He then became a a journalist in the States, and uh, then he returned eventually because they they gave uh, an amnesty to the rebels much later. Uh, So he did return to uh, Toronto. Who was the mayor who went insane due to acute third-stage syphilis? His name was Ernest McDonald. So Ernest McDonald was mayor in 1900, and he had run like about 18 different times for office before becoming mayor. But he was a really hard uh, guy in the sense of getting along with people. He really rubbed people the wrong way. He had a very rocky and very difficult relationship with members of council, and and he actually went to jail at one point before becoming mayor because he objected to some judge who had some ruling over one of his election cases. So he ended up going insane because syphilis, when you have a very late stage, it, it attacks your brain. And it makes you just do all sorts of crazy things. So that was his end result, yeah. Who do you think was the most interesting, colorful Toronto mayor? Alan Lamport um, probably is one of my favorites in the sense of he's what I would call a lovable scoundrel. He had a certain style and, you know, people did like him. And even after he had a kind of a scandal, people still liked him. And they they actually mounted a big campaign in the 1990s to make sure that he was appointed to the Order of Canada because people really loved him. So he was beloved. But what he did was when he became mayor, he went to the Royal York Hotel and he got them to donate a suite of rooms to him 
uh, free of charge, but it was on the proviso that he spend liberally on entertainment, room service, you know, whatever, <laughs> parties. So Alan partied for two years. You know, he had entertainment like you wouldn't believe. He did all of this, though, and, and this is the kicker to nowadays, is that he did all of this with no council approval, with no council permission, no council authorization. Uh, he just went and did it. So when the bills were all totaled up at the end of his mayoralty, uh, it was discovered as a scandal because, you know, somebody brought it up saying, well, what's going on with this suite that the city has at the Royal York Hotel where all the most important decisions are being made? If you totaled the dollars from 1950s dollars to today, the equivalent amount for inflation, it was... Uh, the equivalent of $500,000 of parties in two years. <laughs> so, so if you had a mayor of Toronto today who, you know, if John Tory or Olivia Chow or whoever spent $500,000 on parties at the Royal York Hotel, they would, with no council authorization, they would be run out of town, like be strung up, you know? So, it, uh, it, but he got away with it. And, and people to this day, you speak well of Ellen Lamport. Mark Maloney, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Mark Maloney, author of Toronto's Mayors, A History of the City's Leaders. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.